the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is the culture war spiritual warfare? And then is it okay for pastors to drink alcohol? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. It's great to have you with us on this Wednesday evening. If you've missed any of our show, go get the podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us out a bunch. Also, go find us online at 1160hope.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, You mentioned on Monday or Tuesday, you mentioned uh, Russell Moore, right? Like, uh, I sensed from you uh, a a good amount of respect for Russell Moore, kind of, uh, you know, he kind of aligns with the kind of the way you view the world. That, is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, I think publicly that's like, I think our, like his public ministry is like, yeah, I resonate with that. I resonate with his perspective. I, I think he's thinking um, he's, he's being intellectually honest and not like kind of in the, in the silo of conservative Christianity. Right. Right. So Russell Moore is currently, the editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. Uh, he's also the director of the Public Theology Project. And Russell Moore, with his job at Christianity Today, will regularly write uh, articles. And so back in a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, he wrote this, Culture war is not spiritual warfare. Our ideological opponents are not the enemy. Uh, you could go read that at Christianity Today. But basically what he's saying is... We've mixed up. We often talk in our political day and age right now in the culture wars as this is a spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. And therefore, the people who might disagree with me politically, they might see some things differently. Uh, They're now my enemy to be defeated. The same way I would speak of. Uh, the enemy being Satan or demonic spirits or whatever else it might be. He's got a lot of interesting stuff to stay, say here that I'll point out. But before we kind of dig into it, the idea about culture war and spiritual warfare, more so, Steve, when we see our ideological differences as enemies, when we see people on the idol, ideological other end of the spectrum as our enemies, What's the result of that? Why? Um, here's a leading question. Why is that dangerous? Wow. Um, because I, I think on one on one level, it's because it creates a heart posture and attitude towards others that is distinctly uh, worldly. Mm. And by worldly, I mean, like, by the way, Jesus and Paul would call worldly in Colossians and in in Galatians, like, 
Um, so that when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, right, and Jesus, if if the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes focus on the Sermon on the Mount is the posture and attitude of the winsomeness of the kingdom of God that a person displays to the world that shows God's kingdom. It's literally the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who meek, who are meek for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, right? Like um, it, it was Jesus who it was said was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so right. this idea is like theological gymnastics that moves us away from embodying and uh, incarnating ourselves as light in um, as as people who are character reflect the character of the kingdom of God. Um, and so that's why I think it's incredibly dangerous. It, it it's like just completely contrary to the. Uh, character and nature of what Jesus personified and what, what Jesus calls us to personify. Mm. I, I think that when we see our ideological differences as good versus evil, um, and therefore if I'm go, if I'm on the side of good and you're on the side of evil, you are not now somebody to be loved. You are not somebody to be, mm. uh, you're somebody to be defeated. Like, that's what we do with evil. We defeat it. And so when I see people across the ideological spectrum as my enemy, then it becomes natural to go, and I must defeat you. Yeah. Love your neighbor. That's way out. No, that's not for now. We're in battle and we are to defeat you. But here's the thing, Brian, like, like I, I totally get that. And then yet at the same time, it's as though from that perspective, you forget that you were an enemy of God. Yes. You were enemy of God and God didn't say, let me go defeat them. God said, mm-hmm. let me go redeem them. Uh, yeah. uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Like uh, the, the gospel itself is that we were God's opposition. And if, if so, like the, the word mercy in the new Testament, it carries with it the idea of, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He says um, that grace is uh, concerned with somebody in, uh, in their sin, but mercy is concerned with somebody in their misery. Meaning like mm. mercy is, uh, is sort of this perspective like I have angst about the misery that you've caused your life and I'm, I've got to go do something about it. I've got to go put myself in your shoes. Um, and so when we see that literally, uh, like to put yourself in another shoes, Jesus literally left heaven to put himself and incarnate himself into humanity yeah. so that he could relieve our misery. Mm. Um, and, so, and, and that in, in, in essence is mercy. And so how are like, like even if the other person is my enemy, so to speak, in the in the culture war, how do how does that reflect the gospel? If Jesus was the one who literally like stepped into the shoes of the other uh, to relieve their their misery, that's mercy. That's what we're called to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He uh, more goes on to point out that uh, there's legitimate spiritual warfare out there. Like the Bible is very clear that there's more to this world than we can see. 
that that is a actual thing going on out there and we've got to put on the full armor of God. But his point basically is that we've cheapened it by going like, those are the culture wars, like disagreeing about politics or disagreeing. It's we've raised that to some level and, and it's net. That's not what the Bible is talking about. So Moore ends by saying, to hell with the devil. Let's remember the good news that the foot on the old snake's head has nail prints on it. That's hey. spiritual warfare for real. That's a battle worth fighting, a battle really that's already been won. So he's not saying there's not a battle. He's saying that in our language and in our posture, we're battling the wrong things, mm. that where we're meant to show mercy <laughs> we're showing fight and where we're meant to show fight, we're kind of showing we're ignoring. Uh, And he's saying, let's, let's remember what that battle is out there against principalities and against things unseen. And then I think, as you said, let's love our neighbor as ourself. Let's show mercy. Let's, uh, you know, you bring it up the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. That's no fun because that's a hard way to live. (laughs) Like that's a difficult calling. Uh, but one that we are called to. So great words by Russell Moore there. Uh, Go wrestle with them over Christianity Today. Culture war is not spiritual warfare. All right, Steve, I don't know where you're going to land on this, so I'm just going to ask something that churchleaders.com asked. Is it okay for pastors to drink? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. As I've mentioned, Steve, uh, amongst many other things, is a pastor. I am also a pastor. And this is uh, why at church leaders, this, you know, sometimes, Steve, the headline will just catch your eye and you go, oh, I want to read that. I want to talk about that. Charles Stone asks this question. Is it okay for pastors to drink? He begins by saying, I grew up in the South and in a denomination where pastors who drink uh, beer or any alcohol was frowned upon and definitely considered taboo for pastors. I served in the Central Valley of California where I could drive to several wineries within five minutes or where church didn't frown upon social drinking. Uh, And so he's going to keep going on here, but he basically is asking this. Pastors, is it okay for them to drink alcohol? This is one of the age-old questions here, Steve. Curious on a very practical question, where you land on this and why? (laughs) Uh, you know, I went to a very conservative Southern Baptist seminary for my uh, master's program. And so I, I remember hearing uh, lectures on uh, why pastors shouldn't drink and uh, oh, really? even tied to exegesis um, of passages of scripture. And I remember thinking, uh, that's not the exegesis of that passage. Um, that's the wrong interpretation as I became a pastor and started to teach some of those passages. Um, and then I think I studied and learned a little bit more about legalism and our natural inclination towards, uh, following a rule for rule's sake. Um, and, um, and, and then I met some Christians from Germany and, you know, just talking with them like, Hey, like, would it be taboo for, uh, for you to have a beer, um, at a bar, um, in Germany. And basically the answer is it would be completely taboo if I didn't have a beer at a bar in Germany. Um, it's so such a part of their culture that it would not benefit you to not drink 
in German culture. So uh, mm. literally the, where, where conversations happen, where evangelism has its opportunity, where, uh, where kind of being a part of the culture is, is important um, in Germany, like the idea of what uh, Southern Baptists uh, or I, I just people who say pastors can't drink, um, it just it would be taboo to the mission of God. And so mm. um, I think the the thing to keep in mind for for us is like, um, you know, Romans 14 is a really uh, important passage, I think. Uh, so, like, if it, it causes my brother to stumble, I won't do it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be a person who does all things in moderation. Um, and I know over the course of the pandemic, a number of, of pastors um, fell into some form of uh, alcoholism um, mm-hmm. and just, you know, but at the same time, I, I don't think we call the rule. We make it a rule for a rule's sake. But there's there's open handedness and liberty to it. There's a sense of, of moderation when it comes to uh, to those things. So that's where that's where I land on it. Um, I'm city center Chicago, so it's not inappropriate for uh, for to see uh, me at, with a, a beer at a uh, at a sports bar or, or something like that. Yep. That's like part of the uh, normal rhythm of life in Chicago. But uh, right. And so I, you know, I try to be cognizant of it, like how other people feel about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm free with it. And I kind of have like my two drink max. I, nobody, nobody can go. see me drink more than two drinks publicly. <laughs> so as I was reading this article and kind of thinking about it, something struck me and that was this. Shouldn't the, shouldn't the title of the article be, is it okay for Christians to drink? Mm. Like, do do you think it's odd? Let me ask it a different way. Is it odd that they're singling out pastors here? Or should pastors have a higher standard of, I don't want to cause anyone to think weirdly, or I don't want, like, isn't the article here, is it okay for Christians to drink? Is it okay for Christians to gamble or smoke a cigar or whatever else, as opposed to pastors? Or do you think that it's appropriate to ask the question separately for the two pastors versus just Christ followers. Yeah, I, no, I think, I think it's a Christian question. I, I really, I do think it's, it's a Christian question. And, um, on one end, I think that pastors can model like how to, how to do it, uh, appropriately. Yeah. Right. Um, on the other end, um, yeah, I do, I, you know, and I, I do think that there's a, there's a certain, expectation of, uh, of pastors that's different. I just don't know if that's fair and right, uh, to distinguish the two from like, I'm a Christian versus, uh, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell the guy who drank a six pack of beer, uh, with me, like, man, you might want to think about, you know, slowing down a little bit, um, (laughs) as a Christian, like, like yeah. if you if you're okay with the guy having a six pack of beer who's a Christian and not okay with the pastor having a having a beer one beer, then something's off about that. Like I, I I totally agree with you because I feel like if I quit being a pastor tomorrow, I don't. Obviously, my life would be very different, but I hope it wouldn't be different in the sense of what I'm willing to do and not do. Right. Like. 
hopefully I'll still go to church because going to church is important, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christ follower. Hopefully the decisions I made about drinking or gambling or whatever else will remain consistent. Hopefully I will still love my wife deeply and care for her, not because I needed to do that as a pastor so the church saw it or this, but because I'm a Christian husband Mm -hmm. and I can, hopefully how I love my kids and raise my kids stays the same. Not because I was a pastor or not a pastor. I think this is what gets a lot of pastors in trouble. They put on this, like, this extra like outside pressure of not just this is what I'm supposed to do or be because I'm a Christian, but it's because I'm a pastor. And then we put that on our kids and they get super messed up Yeah, because we're like, Hey, you're the pastor's kid. You can't do X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden they're like, I don't want you to be a pastor anymore. And I don't know, I guess it's a weird, I, I wrestle with this because I don't want extra burdens put on me because I'm a pastor. Yeah, totally. Um, but outside of teach the word well, and you're held to that standard, uh, I want my standards to be the same because I'm a Christ follower, whether I'm a pastor mm-hmm. or not. Is that fair? I, I totally agree. I, I ascribe fully. And I think that this issue falls under the um, the space of uh, conviction. So like if your conscience, yeah. uh, if your conscience is convicting you one way or the other, I think that this is one of those things um, where you have to obey your conscience um, and, and not see it as a black and white legal, uh, issue. Yeah, I think that's good. I, it's just something I wrestle with as a pastor and going back to an earlier conversation, I wonder if that's why a lot of pastors want to get out mm. because either there's an extra burden on them that they can't handle or they're faking it and they don't want to live faking it anymore. So yeah. I, I, interesting, interesting thoughts coming up next. When we close out a show, We try to do so by giving you something to think about, whether it be something funny or something that, you know what, as you struggle or as you consider this question, uh, think about this. And and that's going to be one of these here. As I was reading from Tim Challies. Now, Tim Challies, he was one of the first Christian bloggers. He's he and he writes in a deep, thoughtful way that I'd encourage people to go to Challies.com, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. But his story, um, he was writing well before this, but his story really takes on some depth within the last year or two. uh, His 21-year-old son was at college, perfectly healthy to everyone's knowledge, and just dropped dead of a heart issue. Was about to graduate, just died. And he's very open about the heartache and the questions and what do you do with that? And so when I saw that he wrote about uh, what we're going to talk about, I was like, that guy's got some, he's got some skin in the game with Mm. this one. He knows of what he's writing. He writes this, when you long to know the why behind your sorrow, when you long to know the why behind your sorrow, Steve, you've talked about losing your mom. We've, we all go through things either really big or small, but struggles in life. And I would just start here. It's really natural to want to know and get an answer from God of why. Why did this happen, right? Like that's a natural human instinct. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us have that. Uh, You know, I think of uh, even like when my mother passed away, like I wanted an autopsy uh, done right away Mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what happened, you know, why. Mm. 
Shally's writes this, the answers are rarely forthcoming. We may know the general answers, and he gives some examples, all things work for good or for my name's sake and find some comfort in them. But when we scour the scriptures and devote ourselves to prayer in search of the particulars, or even go further and appeal to prophecies, coincidences, or inner feelings, we're met with silence or uncertainty. Uh, and so he's going to offer four responses to those who long to know the why to their sorrow or their suffering, their time of illness or loss. So Steve, here's what I want to do. I'm going to read kind of all four. Okay. Chally's gives his four responses to those who long to know the why uh, would love to, after I'm done with that, would love to know from you, are these helpful and maybe choose one of them that you find maybe most helpful. So here are Tim Challey's four responses to those who long to know the why to their sorrow. He says, the first is to trust God with it. With it. He says, you've been graciously saved by faith, faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Yet faith is not a one-time reality. Express it and forget it. You need faith for all of life. And so he says, this faith calls you to not merely entrust your soul to God, but also your life, your times, your health, your loved ones, and everything else. He says, even if he chooses not to answer your why question, you can know that he is eminently trustworthy and that he must have very good reasons and a very good plan. Second, he says, is to consider what answer would actually satisfy you. You may think you want to know why, but is it worth asking if you actually do? What answer would satisfy you? And do you have a mind capable of grasping mm. it? Because the answer may reach deep into the past and extend far into the future. God may be up to things that require knowledge far beyond your ability and capacity, far beyond that your limited, a sin-tainted mind. And then even if you could understand, are you confident that you would judge it worth it? Consider if you may actually want to receive an answer and if any answer would satisfy you. Third, he says, steer your mind away from what God has not revealed and steer it instead towards what he has. Instead of searching for the reasons for your tragedy, look to the character of God, all the things that he's revealed about himself. Where your temptation may be to interpret God through what you know about your tragedy, it is infinitely more important to inter interpret your tragedy through what you know about God. So as you endure your time of suffering, bring to mind the glorious reality of who God is and what he has done. Then consider your circumstances in light of the truth. And he says, fourth is turn your focus from, quote, what God did to, quote, how God is using it. And then be careful not to conflate the two. He says, you do not need to know God's reasons in order to praise him for the results. He uses Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott as an example. So he closes by saying, times of suffering are a tragic reality on this side of heaven. And as you endure them, I plead with you not to cheapen your tragedies by doing too quick to assume you know God's purposes in them. Rather, Entrust them to the one who has proven worthy of your trust, your confidence, and your deepest devotion. Entrust it to him. Look to him with faith. Rejoice in every evidence of how he is using it for good and wait for the day when he will make it all clear. I mean, that's that's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot there from Tim Challies. Just a lot of depth. Anything jump out to you? Anything helpful? Uh, where you're like, yeah, that's a good word for people who are struggling. 
you know, I don't know if I know the best word for people who are struggling. I know, I think I know the best word for what helped me or what yeah. I find helpful. Um, and, and I think number one is the one that I find the most helpful, um, mm. uh, trusting God in, in the midst of, uh, uh, sorrow and suffering. And, uh, I remember reading Tim Keller's book on prayer and one of the quotes mm. that it comes out of that book that, um, re- I really resonated with, or at least it really made sense to me is that, uh, this idea that God answers our prayers the way we would want them to, if we knew everything that he knew. Um, and so in in some ways it's a part of trusting God's character and God's affection and love for us, but it's also putting yourself, so you're putting yourself in God's care, but you're also saying, God, I trust you for the details of how this is supposed to work out. Um, Mm. and, and that even in, I've prayed thousands of prayers for this particular situation. Um, and yet I know you chose the best the best route for how this should play out right. if I knew everything that you know. Um, yeah. And, and I think also for, for me, you know, one of the, the biggest things was it, it was suffering was a revealer. Uh, it was a, it was a, it, it like, you know, the, the scripture that says when the wind blows and, and the storm comes, I like building your, uh, your life on the, the rock. Um, and, and Paul says, I, I'm pressed down, but not destroyed. Um, I think that was one of the things in going through suffering and, and experiencing deep levels of grief that I realized like, oh, the deepest longing of my soul has been met. Um, That's right. And so all of those things, you know, I talked about this yesterday, but uh, belonging, acceptance, approval, security, all of those, that, that knowledge of God's affection and love uh, for us that's predicated solely on grace and not my, my performance yeah. itself. Um, and maybe even like suffering actually allowed me to believe that God's affection and love for me was not predicated on my performance or uh, ability to, to keep all the rules, etc. cetera. Um, and, um, and I often, and, and this is just something that I've, I've shared with other people, but there's prayers that I prayed when I was a younger man and a younger minister where I, I prayed for things that I really asked God to allow me to preach from my soul and allow me to, mm. allow me to speak from a place of uh, where I wasn't performing for anybody, where it was just, it was just what was placed on my heart. And to to speak it with uh, uh, just a, a great sense of freedom, and I actually think that suffering was the only way that that was ever going to happen. Um, mm, and so, you know, and I and I think that God allowed suffering to come uh, my way so that that prayer could be answered. Um, mm. And, um, and the reality is like, I don't, you know, the way that the details of life and things, how things work out, et cetera, you know, sometimes, uh, you have expectations for people's lives and God has a plan for how he wants those things to shake out. My mom's plan, uh, you know, I felt like had a lot to do with me more than it had to do with, with her, uh, passing away at 59 and, and, uh, hopefully in the process of, uh, her being on, uh, that, um, you know, uh, hospital bed in, in her room 
And before she passed was her trusting in, in, in Jesus. You know what I mean? If God answers our prayers exactly how we would want him to, if we knew everything that he knew, um, man, I wonder if she did trust Christ, um, in those days leading up to her, her passing. And, um, and it was for me because the future glory is in, is eternity in this life. If, um, I do wonder if there's certain parts of our desire to experience God that will only be revealed and understood through suffering. Yes. Yeah, and that seems to be what Charlie's is saying here, right? Like yeah. there's Man, I appreciate you opening up there. I do think the the also what Charlie said and I'd leave people with is like Trust God's character. What do we know about God? Not what don't we know about our circumstances? What do we know about God? And like you use the, the, the biblical metaphor there, build your house on that. Like that is firm foundation upon which we can build our house. Hopefully that's a good word for you to be left with today, especially if you are struggling. Well, Stephen, I'll be back again tomorrow uh, from 4 until 6 p.m. Until then, we hope that you have a great day. For Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.